chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, the handout I gave you, it's, it's two-sided, so uh, you'll need it. Uh, you may want it. You don't need it. Uh, you may want it throughout. Um, I may not even write up here, but we'll see. Um, but let's get an introduction of Colossians going before we start uh, reading it. And I've got uh, two quotes there for you on the front of that page. Um, uh, one of the important details about Colossians is that Paul was in prison while he wrote it. Right? Um, if you look at Colossians 4... Uh, verses 3 and 4, you'll see where it says, um, With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds or in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And this quote that I gave you there at the top of your handout is from... Uh, John Chrysostom, early church father, um, one of Calvin's favorite commentators to read, one of the more uh, clear commentators from the early church. Um, but he said this, he says, Holy indeed are all the epistles of Paul, but some advantage have those which he sent after he was in bonds, meaning while he was in prison. Those, for instance... To the Ephesians, and to Philemon, that to Timothy, that to the Philippians, and the one before us. He's talking about <laughs> Colossians. For this also was sent when he was a prisoner, since he writes in it thus, and then he quotes part of Colossians 4.3 and part of Colossians 4.4. 4. So Paul is in prison. Right? That helps you uh, have kind of a mental framework, maybe even a mental image of Paul pinning this epistle. Uh, but there's also a location and timing that are important. Uh, where is Colossae? Um, some Bibles spell it C-O-L-O-S-S-E. Some of them spell it C-O-L-O-S-S-A-E. Um, and he even gives an alternate name there uh, by which some people were known to call it as well, C-H-O-N-E. Um, but let's read that quote there. That is from Matthew Poole, uh, a Presbyterian uh, from, I believe he lived in crossover between 1600s and 1700s. But <clears throat> the location and the timing, God having a church planted in the city of Colossae, situated at the conflux of the rivers Meander and Lycus, right? So imagine two rivers coming together, one named Meander, one named Lycus, and it was in the neighborhood of Laodicea, and Hierapolis. If you were to look at Colossians 4, verse 13, you'll see Paul says, uh, I bear him record. He's talking about Epaphras, who we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, he says, I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, meaning Epaphras loved the Colossians, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. And then if you look down in verse 16, says, when this epistle, the one he's writing here, Colossians, is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. Right? So there was evidently a bond between the Laodiceans and the Colossians, um, and that is probably due to their proximity uh, to one another. Um, going on in the quote there from Matthew Poole, he says, in Phrygia of the Lesser Asia. Right? So you're thinking... Uh, east of the Mediterranean Sea. And then he says, Whether at first only by the preaching of Epaphras, one of them who was a servant of Christ and a faithful minister, Epaphras is mentioned in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, or it was by Paul himself who, we learn from Luke that accompanied him, had gone through Phrygia, which is referenced in Acts 16, and again, over all the country of Phrygia in order, which is Acts 18, having stayed for a season in Asia where he wrought miracles and was complained of or asked for for turning away much people. I mean, he was complained against, sorry. Uh, for turning away much people from idolatry almost throughout all Asia. Acts 19, those three verses there, 
but he says we may leave the specific details undetermined. All right. So what he's talking about there, leaving undetermined, is exactly how the church of Colossae came to be. Um, and he uses a couple references throughout the book of Acts where Colossae is not referenced specifically, but these areas like Phrygia are referenced. And it's possible that Epaphras was among that crowd that heard the apostles in the book of Acts and then went and uh, started the church in Colossae. Um, because that, I mean, that seems to make the most sense. If you look at Colossians 1, verse 7, uh, Epaphras is mentioned. Uh, he's talking about how they had heard the gospel, and he says, as ye also learned of or from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, meaning that they had heard the gospel, at least the way Paul phrases it, makes it sound like they had heard it from Epaphras rather than directly from Paul himself. And as I showed you just a moment ago, Epaphras is also mentioned in chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you. Meaning, when Paul writes Colossians, Epaphras is also in prison with him. What was that last verse? 4.12. Yeah. Epaphras is also in prison with Paul when he writes this letter. So all of this that he has heard about the Colossian church seems to be from his time being in prison with the man who had likely planted the church in Colossae. All right. So you have the letter to the Colossians, uh, kind of a background, and um, just it helps you kind of see and make the, the words of the text a little more real uh, to us. Um, another thing, um, there's an important person mentioned in chapter 4. His name is Onesimus. Looks like one Simus, right? But it's Onesimus. What other book of the Bible is he mentioned in? Philemon. 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 Right, yeah. So if you were to look at Philemon, verse 10, remember Philemon, we're not going to go there, but for a reference for learning a little bit more about Onesimus, uh, Philemon, verse 10 and following, gives you a record of him. Uh, and you learn a little bit more about that. That story very often um, commentaries, uh, the newer commentaries, uh, there'll be uh, the same writer will write a uh, commentary on Colossians and Philemon, and it'll be bound together. And it's probably because Paul's writing of Colossians and Philemon took place at the same time, right? Because he knew Onesimus, he knew Epaphras, and he had. Uh, met them while he was uh, <clears throat> in prison. All right, so let's move on a little bit from that and get a little bit more into the text. We'll read uh, verse... Yes? You said that Epaphras was in prison with Paul? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's chapter 4, verse 12. Good. All right, so let's move on to verse 1, Colossians 4, uh, verse 1. Colossians, not Colossians 4, I'm sorry. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, sorry. Start at the beginning of the epistle, start working our way down here, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, what it means to be an apostle. I'll read the first uh, two verses, and then we'll begin talking about those. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment and explain Paul's apostleship. Because Paul was not one of the original 12, right? He was called in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, where he's on the way to uh, Damascus to uh, persecute more uh, Christians to imprison them and all those things, and as you know, the Lord appears to him. But in Paul's description here, he is showing us, well, them primarily, uh, that his being an apostle is just like the others being an apostle. It is an apostle of Jesus Christ, so not an apostle of someone else, and it's also by the will of God. Right? 
And he also says that Timothy is with him, as is often the case in his letters. You can read multiple uh, introductions of Paul's letters, and he very often features Timothy. The Lord Jesus, we know, he only does the will of his Father, so it was the will of the Father and therefore the will of Christ that Paul be made an apostle. And Paul is persuaded, likely, I would say, when, when did he come to know that he was an apostle? Uh, not in the general sense, but in the special sense. It was probably in the time around his conversion in Acts 9, and then he went and spent some time in solitude and study And I'm persuaded that this is likely the time that his apostleship was made clear to him, that he was not just being converted to Christ in general, but that he was being converted to Christ to serve in a special capacity, right? Because he's the the way that the Greek is structured, uh, it's showing his inclusion in the number of the apostles, not just an apostle in general, but one of those types of apostles, right? So they would not question his authority to say these things. Indeed, he is in line with the other apostles with whom he served these early churches. And this is something that um, it's, it's hard for us to relate to because we have the entire New Testament, right? We have the entire Bible. We don't think of it as pieces really coming together. It's just a book to us, right? It's God's Word. But when you're thinking about the early church, they would have heard the gospel from certain people. Some of them have never met Paul, right? So these kinds of of words, they're not throwaway words. They're very important phrases, even in the introduction, to show who he is. And then I gave you a quote there so we can talk about what an apostle is, because uh, this is important, because it's used three different ways in the New Testament. The same word for apostle is used three different ways in the New Testament. I'm just going to read through this quote, and we'll talk about it as we go. This is used in a general, non-technical sense of a messenger or emissary commissioned by people. Notice it doesn't have to be commissioned by God for a specific, temporary, meaning at that moment, task. So Philippians 2.25, where Epaphroditus is referenced. We know he's not one of the capital A apostles. 2 Corinthians 8.23, Titus's two companions. Very often in your English Bibles, the same word that will be translated sometimes as messenger is also translated apostle in other places. What helps us determine the meaning is the context, right? What is being said about this person, who they are, who has sent them, right? So that's the general sense in which someone can be an apostle. But there's also, before you get to capital A apostles, there's a semi-technical sense, of a Christian with a particular and permanent commission from Christ or the local church. All right. An example of this is Romans 16, 7, where uh, Andronicus and that highly debated figure Junius or Junia, uh, different people prefer different renderings of his or her name there. Some people uh, who are egalitarian, who believe that women can serve in church office, Uh, would use Junius as an example of a female apostle in the capital A sense. And um, it's not necessary from the passage, and that would contradict other places of Scripture. But it is this uh, semi-technical sense of the term that's used there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.7 and Galatians 1.19, where you're told about James, the brother of Jesus, who was not an apostle in the capital A sense, right? Because none of Jesus' brothers followed him as one of the twelve, right? And they and Paul was not his brother, so those are the only options. Then you have 1 Corinthians 9, verses 5 and 6, where Barnabas is mentioned and included uh, as a messenger in a semi-technical sense. But then you have the third and the technical sense, which is being used here in verse 1. Uh, of the 12 alone, right? Where you have Matthew 10, they were called and established, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 and 7, and Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 15, 9. They are commissioned directly by Christ for permanent and distinctive leadership in the universal church, right? And these things are, are more apparent to us in the English because our, the translators of our Bibles uh, know how to make the distinction based on context. You don't normally have apostle used unless it's talking about the 12 apostles in 
the sense of number three that we just looked at, but know that it is the same word. Right? It's just the context that helps you determine uh, what it is. All right, so that's the, the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, and then Timothy is there with him. All right, let's talk about the target audience in verse 2, the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. The target audience, right? So you have that, that first uh, lump of words there. They are called saints and faithful brethren. He's not talking about two classes of people, right? He's not saying there are some who are saints and then there are some who are merely faithful brethren. He is calling them both titles, Right. Note well those names. Saints are holy ones. We could say that that is their status. They're the sanctified ones in Christ. They are those who have been baptized. And faithful brethren is more of a recognition right, of their, their manner of service and the way that they live. Paul had heard from Epaphras that they were faithful. Therefore, he calls them that. But all of it is grounded in Christ to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, he says in verse 2. Paul writes to encourage and arguably to provoke service out of them more and more because the truth is holy ones live faithfully. Saints are to be people who are faithful, uh, but you could imagine sometimes where Paul doesn't include faithful brethren in his uh, introduction maybe because of certain problems that were going on in the church or maybe just the freedom of the Spirit and leading him to write different things to different people. Um, but yes, he also wants to recognize how they've been living. If you look at verse 4 of Colossians 1, he says, Since we, him and Timothy, have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. Right? So he wants to recognize that. He's heard of them, but he also issues them a benediction. Right? The second part of verse 2, Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the, the difference between a benediction and a doxology. A benediction is from heaven to earth. A doxology is from earth to heaven. Right? Yes, sir? Would, would, Luke, would Luke, who wrote a couple books in the Bible, would he be an apostle in which sense here? Um, let's see. Not one of the twelve. Right. I would say, um, probably, I don't know, it seems to be, I mean, obviously only one or two would be an option. Um, the only way that I lean towards number two would be because of the ongoing permanent status of his gospel in the book of Acts, right? Um, so number two says it's a Christian with a particular permanent commission from Christ or the church, right? So Luke have had that commission maybe in some sense. Could he be a three in that sense? We just don't know. I'm just, it doesn't really fit perfectly in any of these. But no. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Kind of curious. Thanks. No, that, that's a good question. Um, because Luke's position as a writer of a gospel is not grounded in him being an apostle but having known them. Right? Um, and that gives the, the validity to his testimony. He had seen some of the things. He had heard them. Uh, but as you know that uh, Luke um, was close companion of the apostles and would have known those things, but he was not a capital A apostle in that sense. Um, probably a, a mashup between one and two, but definitely since he became a gospel writer, I could see how two uh, could be argued. Yeah. Um, so, uh, something to consider as we read through the epistles. Uh, these, these, uh, these introductions uh, that they give when they write their letters. Um, there is no way, I don't think, there's no way the apostles knew each person in those churches to which they wrote. Right? There's just not. You know, Paul had a close relationship with, closer relationship with some churches than he did with others. So maybe in a couple of churches or one church he might have known all the people. 
but it's, it's highly doubtful that they knew every single person. Uh, so what were they doing when they addressed the congregation as saints and faithful brethren? I think they were doing what we call the judgment of charity. The judgment of charity. Um, and that implies a particular view of the church. Right? That you look on the assembled body of Christ with charity and love. The whole body of the church is called saints and faithful brethren. And if you look uh, in chapter 3 near the end, that includes wives, it includes husbands, it includes children, it includes fathers, it includes, I'm, at, I'm going down each verse starting at 18, I'm in 22 now, it includes servants, chapter 4, verse 1, it includes masters, right? So Paul addresses those who own slaves, who had servants, and calls them saints and faithful brethren. He addresses children and calls them saints and faithful brethren. He addresses husbands, wives, right? All of these things, and fathers and mothers by implication, and calls them saints and faithful brethren. And this just shows that the apostolic way of looking at the church is those who are hearing the word of God, those who are under the authority of the local church, who are gathered to worship, they deserve, based on the apostles' practice, the judgment of charity. Right? That we are not to look on the assembled body of Christ with skepticism. We're not. Now, Paul does not hold back, as we know from places like 1 Corinthians. When there is a sin and he knows the person's name or he knows the issue, he calls out that sin. But that doesn't make the body uh, any less uh, full of saints and faithful brethren. It's not only a Presbyterian thing, it is a scriptural thing to view the entire congregation as faithful until they prove otherwise, either as a congregation, because we know that happens, right, where the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation threatens to remove a lampstand of a congregation, right? But we also know it with reference to individuals, where Christ in Revelation and Paul in his epistles call out people at times by name. And that uh, salutation, as it were, uh, saints and faithful brethren, is important to to consider. Epaphras had told him of them. Then in verse 3, um, maybe you remember as many people preach on Ephesians chapter 1, they'll tell you that uh, in Ephesians 1, I think it's like the first uh, verse 3 to 24, 21 or something. It's really long. It's all one sentence in the Greek. But here in Colossians chapter 1, you have two long sentences. In verse 3 to 8 is one sentence in the Greek. And then in verse 9 to 14, they also form one sentence in the Greek. And what they are framed around, and I think the first chapter of Colossians is framed around, I actually used this, preaching, used this in preaching not too long ago, is Paul's prayer for the Colossians. If you look at verse 3, you see that Paul says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Then look at verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And then in verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet or competent, suitable, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So those are three references to giving thanks or praying uh, in the first, what was that, uh, 12 verses of this chapter. And if, uh, if time permits, we can go back and read through some more of the verses. But you'll notice that as you read through it and think through the first chapter of Colossians, um, between verse 3 or starting at verse 3 going down to verse 8. Verse 3 begins with, we give thanks, praying, because. And then verse 4 to 8 is the reasons because. All right? And then you go to verse 9. We give, uh, we cease not to pray for you. And then you say, he says, why? In the rest of verse 9, in verse 10, and verse 11. And then in verse 12, he does the same thing, giving thanks 
for these reasons, right? And what he's going to do uh, is he's preparing the congregation uh, for his rebuttal, basically. Because one of the errors that was creeping into the Colossian church was it was an error with regard to salvation, yes, but more narrowly with regard to worship. Because the people were believing, most scholars say, and commentators, they had begun to believe that there was some kind of special mediation that could be found in angels or this special knowledge that could be given that could lead you to a truer understanding. And what Paul does in the rest of chapter 1 is highlight the supremacy of Jesus Christ to show that none of that is necessary and to actually supplement Christ in that way is to take him away. So when you look at Colossians 1 verse 23, it begins to make sense because they were kind of like the Galatians in danger of departing. But in verse 23 of Colossians 1, he says, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, meaning you've already heard this from us, and which was preached to every creature which was under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. That's the kind of the theological context of this, that they were in danger of moving away from the hope of the gospel. And as we move through, uh, you could look at chapter 2, uh, verse, uh, let's see, verse 8. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments or the elementary things, the elements of the world, and not after Christ. All right, so those categories are kind of the things that they were being distracted by. He's not condemning all philosophy, right? but he's condemning philosophy that leads to vain deceit. He's not condemning all traditions of men, but traditions of men that would supplant the supremacy of of Christ. And that phrase, the elements of the world, that is used by Paul in Colossians, and it's also used in Galatians to refer to the ways of the Old Testament. The elemental things, the basic things. Think of element like elementary, right? The low level things. Because compared to the New Testament, the Old Testament is elementary, right? It really is. It is the foundation. Paul even calls it in Galatians a tutor to bring us to Christ. So that's kind of the the theological errors that were being uh, discussed. But I want to show you a little bit, and this will be what we focus on for the next few weeks after we're done today, a little bit of how Paul tries to exalt Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Notice the one to whom thanks is directed in verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father, right? Um, or you could say we give thanks to God the Father, but the and is there. He's including both titles and showing that he's thinking of salvation in this particular way. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one to whom thanks is directed is given two titles with reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God of Jesus, and he is the Father of Jesus. And it appears that these two references point to the two natures of Christ and the oneness of his person. The Father is the God of Jesus with reference to his humanity. Is the God of Jesus, yes. Uh, He is the Father of Jesus with reference to his divinity. Now, those are kind of complex ideas, but they will get you, ma'am? All right. The Father is the God of Jesus with reference to his humanity. But he is the Father of Jesus with reference to his divinity, right? 
So he's the God of Jesus with reference to his humanity, but he's the Father of Jesus with reference to his divinity. Now, I'm not trying to separate the two natures of Christ, but show you the two natures of Christ highlighted in one person. Now, I gave you these two other quotes, and we can spend our time kind of wrangling with them uh, for the rest of our or less, little under 20 minutes here that we got left. Before you go too far in that, yes. when you were laying the foundation earlier on for how Paul approaches them and why he, and, and his uh, recognition of them, you quoted from the from verses 3 and 4 when you were talking about where you are right there mm-hmm. you know, they heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love for the saints so you know that's faith and love in that but you didn't tie you didn't pick up the last part of that because of the hope laid up for you in heaven mm-hmm. and those three to me they connect because there's faith hope and love in the process and yes as we are called to be disciples of Christ isn't that always one of the marks that we're supposed to be looked at is the very three basics that are there in us that we are showing those things in our Christian witness in our life so help me what was he connecting when he met when he talked about that the hope is stored up for you in heaven um well the hope that was Let's go there instead of going to where I was going to go because I have notes on that. All right. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I can do that. That'll probably be a little, uh, a little more lowbrow than than what we were about to do, and maybe easier to close with this. But let me let me start at verse four. All right, and then we'll we'll work through those ideas. Uh, it says the saint or my notes say the saints at Colossae had a faith worth talking about. Right. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. All right. And it was worthy of mentioning and obviously very sweet to the ears of Paul and Timothy. They loved one another because the Lord was at work in them. Imagine having a faith that the apostles would thank the Lord for. Right? Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and you go back up to the top of verse 3, we give thanks to God. One of the things that they are giving thanks to God for, right? but not just faith. But as Mr. Lee points out, love as well. The love for all the saints. And then the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. That is the three uh, chief virtues, faith, hope, and love. The three uh, cardinal um, things that mark the life of a believer. And what Paul does is he kind of takes a turn from earth to heaven and begins thanking the Lord for the hope that he had provided. What, what I think the link is uh, in verses 4 and 5, yes, he uses those traditional words, faith, hope, and love. He doesn't use them in that order. Faith, he says faith, love, and hope. But what he's doing is uh, kind of reversing his attention, right? Because faith in Christ is something that is on the earth, right? We have faith in Christ here. Obviously, he's there, but love for all the saints, right, is very much an earthly thing, but also has a heavenly direction. But then he takes us up to heaven more specifically for, or because of, or out of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And then he gives the explanation of what that is, which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit, etc., etc. So what I think Paul is doing is tying these things together and showing their communion with God in Christ, as he says several times, in the heavenly places, that the hope is not on the earth. The hope is not in this age. But the faith that you show is in Christ Jesus. The love that you have for the saints is all around. But the hope is laid up in heaven. And you have heard this message. This this would be important again to combat that error that they were facing. I see where that yeah. singling them out and giving them something, but yet at the same time, while their hope is there, but there's still then he, there's an error that comes along mm-hmm. with that too. So that's right. what I was trying to figure out how to. Yeah. So he notice he draws it back to what they had heard already in the truth of the gospel that it had already come to them. Meaning it wasn't something that they still had to pursue. 
Because these saints were being led to believe that they had to pursue something else. That Christ was just kind of the starting point, and then you built on that. Like a lot of times, if you've ever heard of uh, Gnosticism, uh, that's a word that's kind of thrown around to talk about what they were dealing with here uh, in Colossae. But what it was, was just to put it more simply, it was that Jesus was good, but there was more to it. Right? That you build on Christ, and then you add stuff to him to really get salvation. But he said, no, your hope is laid up for you in heaven. Your hope is Christ, because he is in heaven. He has ascended there, and you've heard this. You don't need a new message. You don't need a new teaching. And like I said, he's taking a turn, I think, from earth to heaven and begins. He doesn't thank the Lord for, uh, excuse me, he doesn't thank them for the hope that they had laid up. He thanks the Lord, right, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. He turns, uh, as it were, his direction. This hope is what had been preached to them in the word of the truth of the gospel, verse 5. Not only had it been brought to them, but verse 6 tells us that it had been brought into all the world. Right? What a way to, uh, to say things in some sense. Therefore, I think you could say that the apostles fulfilled the Great Commission. Because remember the promise was that Christ would be with them to the end of the world, the end of their fulfilling of it. Obviously, the Great Commission carries on as we continue to preach the word of the truth of the gospel today. But Jesus said that the gospel is going to go to all nations. It was going to go to the whole world. And as far as they were concerned in their early writings here, that was what had happened. Obviously, God had more planned, but as it stood for the writers here, he says, um, what other verse was that? Uh, it was one of the ones I read earlier from the chapter 1, I think. But uh, in verse 7, verse 6, which has come unto you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit. Right? We continue to preach the gospel and look for these things. The gospel was bringing forth fruit, or you could say that they were bringing forth the fruit of the gospel in their lives, as were the other believers that Paul assumes in verse 6. Notice how he, he phrases it. He says, uh, you, and bringing forth fruit as it does also in you. Meaning, just as in all the world it's bringing forth fruit, so too it's bringing forth fruit in you. And what I think he's trying to show here again is another like knock against the error. right? That you're already seeing the fruits of the gospel that you've heard. You don't need a new one. Right? The world is evidence to it, he says. All those around you that have heard this gospel, they didn't need this new teaching, and the gospel was bringing forth fruit in them. You don't need it either. In fact, it is erroneous. The same fruit that's bearing in them is bearing in you. There were other believers that Paul assumes in this verse, and this began. Notice, notice how he says it. Uh, Since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth, they were, by the Lord's grace, eager receivers of this truth. They did not prove to be obstinate hearers. You could think of the different types of soils in the parable of uh, the soils, right? Where you've got the, the ones who are more eager receivers, the ones who are more uh, slow in receiving, the ones who eagerly receive and then fall away. And I'm sure that Paul is aware of that and is desirous that they prove not to be that, right? Because there are some that eagerly receive it from the day that they hear it and yet they still fall away because the roots are not planted deep. Paul is trying to get them firmly planted in Christ, showing them that their hope is already present to them. It's laid up in heaven. They're in Christ already. They've heard the message of the gospel. There's nothing else to hear in that sense. There is no further knowledge. And he, he brings in their friend Epaphras, who was a fellow servant with Paul, and a faithful minister of Jesus Christ by his reckoning, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit, he says in verse 8. So we have 10 minutes. Maybe we can get through these quotes here. Um, what I'm not skipping verses uh, 8 through 14. I just want to give you a taste from verse 15 of how Paul speaks of the Lord Jesus to kind of raise their their sight to see that the salvation in him cannot be surpassed or exceeded. All right, so in verse 15, let's read that verse really quick. 
It says, who is, meaning he is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, or the firstborn of all creation. All right, so image of the invisible God, firstborn of every creature. Let's just talk about what it means for him to be the image of the invisible God. And if you have questions about the other stuff, I could try to answer those too. But this first quote is from Calvin. <clears throat> and he calls him the image of the invisible God. He's talking about the Lord Jesus, meaning by this, that it is in him alone, that is in the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, it is in him alone that God, who is otherwise invisible, is manifested to us in accordance with what is said in John 1, 18, which says, No man hath ever seen God, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, hath himself manifested him to us, right? You know, this is, you know, kind of gets into the debate about what you'll see in heaven, right? What will you see in heaven? How can you see an invisible God in heaven? A God who is spirit, right? The traditional position is you won't see him. You'll see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. But how can you see that which is invisible? How can you look on him whom no man can look on and live. We will see his glory, but it will be in the face of Jesus Christ. That's one of the arguments for the incarnation as well. But to say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning everything that is invisible about God that he can and desires to show us is shown to us in Jesus Christ. Right? If there is an image of the invisible God, and there is, it is Jesus Christ. Right? That is the point that Paul is making. He is the image of the invisible God. And that word for image there is the word icon. Right? Think of an icon, right? Some Mary, you Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's I mean that's a uh, let me think what I want to say here. The there's a, a part in our confession I think it talks about the sacraments, but most people apply it to the two natures of Christ too. That when you're talking about the person of Christ, that which refers to only one nature applies to the whole person. Let me give you an example. In Acts 20, we're told that God has blood. How can an invisible spirit have blood? Well... He can't. He doesn't. He's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus can be termed God because he is God and man. But why wouldn't it say the man Jesus Christ's blood, right? Because it's just making a point under the inspiration of the Spirit that you can refer to Jesus as God in the flesh, right? Because that did happen in the incarnation of Christ. But you know that his flesh is not um, what's the word I'm looking for? His flesh is not uh, flesh from heaven, as it were. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not that Jesus was born fr with flesh from heaven. He was born with flesh from the Virgin Mary, right? His divine nature comes from heaven, but his flesh does not. So him saying that he's the image of the invisible God... Is like saying what Jesus said to the apostles when he says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not that he is the Father, but that if you desire to see the Father, you have to look at Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. And then uh, the second quote here from Matthew Poole, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, he says, As he is the second person in the Blessed Trinity... From an intrinsical relation to the Father. Now, all that means, I know it sounds very high and lofty. All that means is that the reason that we can say that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity is because of his relationship to the Father as the divine Son. Right? So we, we do say that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Right? There wasn't a fourth member of the Trinity added when Jesus ascended into heaven. Right? It's still the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, 
so from an intrinsic relation to the Father, in regard of the same essence with him by eternal generation before the world was made. And that's just saying what we confess in the creeds, that the Son is of the Father by eternal generation. The life of the Son proceeds from the Father, and he is one God with him, and the Spirit being implied as well. He being eternally in the Father, and the Father in him, John 14, 10. So he is, in respect of his Father, his essential image. And in regard to us, as invisible as the Father himself. He's talking about the divine nature of Christ. He is, in respect of his Father, his essential image. And in regard to us, as invisible as the Father himself. No creature could be the eternal image of the Creator as that Son of the only true God, the living God, was and is. And he says, in respect of his Father. So when he draws out this fact, think about it, because it's a, a powerful point, that when you see Jesus Christ in the flesh, you do not see his divinity. Because it's invisible. Right? The divine nature is invisible. You see his humanity. This is why some of the Reformed writers of the past, in arguing against images of Christ, have said you can only draw half of Christ because you can't draw his divine nature. Right? Make of that argument what you will. But that was one of the things that they say. Right? You don't see the whole Christ, merely by looking with your eyes. But when you see Christ, you see the image of the invisible God that God has given. No man can look on God and live. No man has seen God except the Son, who exegetes him to us, as John 1, uh, 18 says. Yes? From a, I know we're told this to pray in the name of, you know, of all three parts of the Trinity, but in reality, in reality... From a practical standpoint, if you're praying, you could pray to Jesus Christ, and you are praying to God, period. Mm -hmm. I mean, all this, you know, all this talk about, you know, praying to God, in reality, who were, from a practical, yeah, we're praying to God, but in reality, our God is Jesus. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? In I mean, a sense, yeah. I mean, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the catechism teaches us to, to pray every prayer in Jesus' name. Yeah. Um, because that's his explicit teaching in the Gospels. He does say that. But as you say, even in, um, in the Lord's Prayer, you don't have Jesus at the end saying, in, in my name or in Jesus' name or anything like that. He, he has more of a reference to God generically. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Um, but most Christian writers have said basically what you just said. Um, those who kind of dwell on the topic as it relates to prayer. That when we pray, we don't have to say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes we can, it's fine to say that. But saying in Jesus' name recognizes the same reality as saying in the Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. I was listening to Dr. Sproul one, one morning when I was doing my walk and he was talking. And he just made some interesting comments. On, and, and he pointed out that even the disciples, those that were able to physically see Jesus, if you get in and look at that, you're not really seeing Jesus. We're simply seeing the same thing we see when we look at images reflected back to our eyes and all of that you know, and, the, and the miraculous ability that God created and gave us but yet what they were able to do is somewhat with that, what we as new believers see we don't see Christ you know, as, as the spirit moves within us we don't see him physically we see, we begin to uh, to see him in the, probably the lowest realm of spiritual that we can process. Because we see from our heart, we see from our soul, we see because we see from a, from a hope, from a belief in that process. And that had to come from the help of the Holy Spirit or we would not have ever had that in the process. But you know, some witnesses are examples of that when Peter 
was asked, who am I? And he said, you know, you are the son of God in the process. Well, physically, he couldn't have looked at Jesus and by that alone and said, you're the, you are who you are. It, it has to come. But anyway, there's no answers to that, but it's just that point to, for us to say, which, 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 which Paul is saying, he is the image, but it's not always, it's, we're still so limited in our creature situations for us to be able to even recognize that. But I think he gives it to us because we are so limited, at least it's something we can get our head around in the process. Yes. Um, the incarnation of God the Son keeps in mind the difference between the creator and the creature. Right? Is the point that you're making. Um, that God, in every way, has to condescend to us for us to understand. That was the case even before Adam sinned. Right? Because he was still the created. God was still the creator. God condescended and spoke to him. How much more condescension does it require once we have fallen as a human race? Um, but just to, to harp on the image of the invisible God for about 10 more seconds, right? That doesn't mean that the invisibleness of God is shown in Christ, right? Because you can't show that which is invisible, right? He's saying that the invisible God, I show him to you through myself as I live. Right? I am the image of the invisible God. And when Jesus made all those claims about I am, it begins to make sense. Um, one other verse. Uh, let's see here. Uh, leaving my mind. But it's where Paul says that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. Right? That's another, and it may be in Colossians 1, and I just can't remember it. But that doesn't mean that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live inside the person of Jesus Christ. But everything that we need to know and everything that we need to be saved dwells bodily in Christ. So, anyway, let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for uh, this study, for the privilege that it is to uh, try to understand these these deep things. Um, Colossians is uh, very complicated. This very high doctrine that Paul goes into, um, it's almost as if he was trying to one-up those false teachers to show that you have barely only scratched the surface. How true that, that feels to us, that we barely scratch the surface of who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit, um, how you are revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Oh Lord, fill our hearts with wonder and worship and adoration. Help us to allow the mystery of all this to drive us not to uh, ungodly confusion or despair, but to drive us to our knees in praise and thanksgiving. Prepare us for worship and for your table, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.